0: This is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, April 29, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I have an axe to grind, and I hope to hit a few clowns in the face with it. The subtitle tonight, tonight we'll be presenting the third part of our series of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. The subtitle is, Who Opposes True Christianity? The subtitle tonight does not have as much to do with the content we will be presenting from Paul's epistle this evening, as it does with the fact that many of our preliminary comments are both an extension of last week's commentary, combined with some of our opinions on a state of white nationalism today. At the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul had discussed the persecution which he had suffered in Philippi, where he had been jailed for upsetting certain Roman pagans. They were angry for having lost the prospect of profit they had in their control of a woman who had been taken by a spirit of divination when Paul had exorcised that spirit from her. There we took an opportunity to discuss the persecution of Christians as it was mentioned by the pagan writers, the historians Tacitus and Suetonius and later by the Christian writers Minucius Felix and Tertullian. The point we wanted to make is that the wide-scale persecution of Christians by both pagans and Jews in the first century is a historical fact that cannot be honestly disputed. This persecution, which is recorded as early as the time of Claudius, was also usually instigated by the Jews. We are stressing this aspect of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians here, because there are many fools today who have been led to doubt, the actual historical existence of a man named Jesus Christ and they disparage and deny all the records of his existence which are greater in number than the records, the contemporary records of great historical figures such as Alexander the Great and Cyrus the Persian along with that they have obfuscated or sought to destroy what his existence really means to the people of Europe and why those people for the most part voluntarily accepted Christianity this too is the work of the Jews in a modern era but many whites and especially white nationalists who are disaffected with corrupt Judeo-Christianity which really isn't Christianity at all have been deceived by this jewish treachery we are confronted with them all too frequently as we argued in our last presentation these ancient records are legitimate there are other such records which we have not yet discussed such as the letters of pliny the younger Who in 97 AD was attempting to suppress Christianity in Bithynia. The persecution of Christians in the time of Pliny and the Emperor Trajan, or I should say Trajan, was made on the basis that Christianity undermined the authority of the Roman state. These also support our position. And altogether, the ancient records prove beyond doubt that the traditional narrative concerning the historicity of Yahshua or Jesus Christ and the development of early Christianity is certainly correct. Towards the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul had referred to the Jews who were persecuting himself and the other apostles of Christ, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and persecuted us, and are not pleasing to God, and are contrary to all men. Saying these things, Paul was recollecting his experiences, not only in Judea, but in Thessalonica and Berea, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 17 it is clear from the accounts in Acts and from many statements in Paul's epistles that those Edomite Jews who rejected the gospel of Christ persecuted Christians not only in Judea but throughout the Roman world and as they persecuted Christians they also enlisted and agitated pagan Romans and pagan Greeks against the Christians One place this is evident is in Acts chapter 17 where it is described that the Jews had recruited men to set the whole city of Thessalonica in an uproar against the Christians. Paul then said here that those Jews were preventing us from speaking to the nations, that they would be preserved, where Paul concluded in that same place that the wrath has come upon them at last. And we discussed at length how Paul must have understood that Rome was about to turn on the Edomite Jews who were in control of Judea and that Jerusalem would be destroyed. As he inferred in Romans chapter 16, the Edomite Jews, acting like the proto proto-Bolsheviks that they were, had been agitating troubles with Rome for many years before the actual revolt of 65 through 70 AD. The hostility towards Christians only exacerbated the Jewish agitation. In the last verses of the chapter, Paul discussed how he had tried to return to see the Christians at Thessalonica but that more than once he had been hindered by the adversary, or Satan. And by saying that, he was actually referring to those same Jews who, as Luke described in Acts chapter 17, were persecuting him from city to city, to the point where he was forced to leave Macedonia. This is where we pick up the narrative as we commence with 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul mentions that after departing Macedonia, he had gone to Athens, and that corresponds with the end of Acts chapter 17, and the speech which he had given on the Areopagus, or the Hill of Heirs. Before we commence with this epistle, We would like to illustrate certain parallels in this account to the position of true Christians today because there is nothing new under the sun. At the end of our last presentation, we gave a somewhat off-the-cuff rant concerning certain so-called white nationalists who were actually cooperating with the Jews rather than with true white Christians. This is what nearly all of the secular white nationalists are doing today and just like the pagans of old they are not only cooperating with the Jews but often even joining with the Jews in the persecution of true white Christians. If there were only lions pits to throw us into. Primarily this is how they are cooperating with Jews because they accept the abhorrent Jewish narrative concerning the Old Testament and the nature of Christ and his apostles. From this point, most secular white nationalists are split into two groups. The first being those who work with most Christians in spite of this acceptance and those who hate all Christians because of this acceptance. Of the first group, which includes David Duke, Kevin McDonald and Jared Taylor, we say that they work with most Christians because on account of the Jews, they frequently reject identity Christians, who are the only real Christians. The second group, those who hate all Christians, includes Kyle Hunt and a host of other clowns at Stormfront and other so-called white nationalist forums, idiots like Charles Giuliani, who hate identity Christians perhaps even more than they hate Judeo-Christians, perhaps even more than they hate Jews or at least they pretend to hate Jews. Perhaps they do this because identity Christians are more proactive than most Judeo-Christians and they fail to properly distinguish them from the Judaized variety. Or perhaps they do it because they are actually Jews only posing as white nationalists. If we believed, we meaning identity Christians, and I happen to know several hundreds of them personally, and believe that in this aspect, I can speak for them. If we believe that either Christ or his apostles were Jews, then we know that we ourselves could not possibly be Christians. But instead, we are Christians because we know with certainty that the Jews are not the people of the Old Testament. And we also know that at least most of our own white ancestors had actually descended from the Israelite people of the Bible. Secular white nationalists, nationalists reject the mountains of evidence we have to prove our case, and instead they prefer to side with the Jews. They side with the Jews on both issues, Jewish identity and European identity, failing to examine any of the evidence. Then, to make matters worse, secular white nationalists adopt the arguments which are used by the Jews themselves against identity Christians, and even go so far as wrongly accusing them of wanting to be Jews. Why would they do these things, since they themselves pretend antipathy towards Jews? But this is what clowns such as Kyle Hunt have done. Hunt pretends to despise Jews, yet he quickly learns all they have to say about ancient history, the Bible, and religion in general, and he repeats it practically verbatim. Men who do these things may as well be Jews themselves. We do not blame anyone for despising what is called Judeo-Christianity. The phrase itself is an oxymoron. And in substance, modern Judeo-Christianity is really only rabid Zionist Judaism and Jewish supremacism. We fully understand all of that and we ourselves should despise it as well as the secular white nationalists. But Judeo-Christianity is not real apostolic Christianity. It is Judaism packaged in a pseudo-Christian wrapper. We would assert that so-called secular white nationalists do not understand true Christianity at all, which today is only found in what we call Christian identity and that none of them have ever even taken the time to look into the assertions of identity Christians deeply enough to understand them if the secular white nationalists really knew what we stood for even if they did not accept it they should still know enough not to persecute us if indeed they are true white nationalists but Kyle Hunt using this clown as an example Kyle Hunt recently published an article lampooning Christian identity and its primary sources list many Jewish controlled websites such as Wikipedia yes, that's Jewish controlled the Jewish woman's archive the website called Faithweb which is controlled by a company a corporation with a Jewish CEO The website Brit-Am, which is a so-called British-Israel website, owned, operated, and written by a Jew. The Jewish And lastly, a website called Gnostic Warrior, which is owned by, you guessed it, a Jew. He even admits it on his own website. Hunt obtained his understanding of supposed Christian identity beliefs from Jews citing Gnostics, Masons, the Kabbalah, the Talmud and other quite nefarious sources. All of which are absolutely odious to identity Christians. Then in his article he attempted to associate my website Christogenia with all of these sources taking bits and pieces of our own articles out of context. He went so far as to claim that the only place from which we could get certain of our beliefs are the books of the Talmud and the Gnostic Gospels. But the truth is, and at Christagenia, I'm sure, I don't count my articles and podcasts, I'm sure you will probably find about 800 podcasts and at least 200 articles outlining our Christian identity profession, at least as I see it, and probably another five or 600 articles at Clifton Emmaheiser's website. And we do not cite those writings anywhere in the hundreds of articles which we have written. We have often disparaged the Talmud, and we have always rejected the Gnostic Gospels as the spurious work of Alexandrian Jews. We have even frequently expressed criticism of Wesley Swift, one of the oldest renowned American Christian identity pastors and writers. We have frequently expressed criticism of Wesley Swift, where he had sometimes cited writings which he claimed were found in the Zohar, which is a work of the Talmud, or of the Kabbalah, I forget which, and is part of the mystical Jewish literature that identity Christians everywhere should reject. We do not employ any of those sources to support any of our assertions concerning either the Bible or history. None of them. But Hunt is associating us with those sources in his article. That's called a straw man. It's really a lie. Kyle Hunt, you're a liar. A straight liar. Hunt also cited British Israel sources, such as Yair Davidi, the Jew at Bredam, and neither do we agree with most of the material which comes from British Israel associations, who also often hate us because they are too friendly to the Jews. In fact, Yer Davidy, whom Kyle Hunt in his article tried to associate with Christogenia as having the same or similar professions, when the truth is actually just the just about 180 degrees opposite, Yer Davide has called me a beast. A beast, a wicked animal, several other epithets he has for me because of my rejection of Jews. Imagine that. So Hunt learned all about us from our enemies and took it for granted that our enemies accurately reflect what we believe. He attributed many of their assertions to us when we professed none of those things which he had said that they assert. Kyle Hunt has blindly swallowed, or perhaps he has willfully adopted, all of the Jewish lies concerning Christian identity. But in his article, he also created many of his own lies. It is Kyle Hunt who is a tool for the Jews Just like the ancient pagans of Rome, Kyle Hunt is a cuck for Satan, to use a rather prurient term that he himself employed. The article we mention here has been discussed in the Christogonia Forum, but we felt the need to address it here at length, because not all of our listeners had the time to wade through the material at the forum. We also discuss this because Hunt's article is representative of the common attacks which neo-pagans, secular white nationalists, and other scoffers frequently make against identity Christians. The only sources employed at Christagenia as an offer of proof concerning the of our Christian identity profession are characteristically non-Jewish academic language resources, classical European and Near Eastern histories, the histories of Flavius Josephus, documented archaeological discoveries, and ancient scripture and copies of scripture found in archaeology. Our assessments of what we have learned from these sources are absolutely consistent with what is found in the Old and New Testaments. We stand on solid ground, not on the damned books of the Talmud. But the whites among our adversaries, if indeed they are white, refuse to face us on that ground. So they employ the subterfuge against us, which they have learned from the Jews. Paul of Tarsus himself distinguished between the people of the Old Testament and the Jews in Acts chapter 26, where he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come for which sake for which hope's sake King Agrippa I am accused of the Jews with this one simple statement we may perceive that the twelve tribes of the ancient children of Israel are not the Jews and that the Jews are not the twelve tribes we may learn why that is true by examining the histories of Josephus for the intertestamental period, as well as many other writings found in both the Old and New Testaments. Paul himself had revealed the nature and identity of the twelve tribes in his epistles in places in his writings, such as Romans chapters 4 and 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Galatians chapters 3 and 4. These things are all consistent with both Old Testament and Classical history. But in order to understand the analogies which Paul makes in those chapters, one must understand both the Old Testament and Classical and Ancient history as Paul understood them. Paul also foresaw the wrath of God, which was to come upon the ancient Roman world. And for that reason, he stated here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Jews were preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved. Those nations to whom Paul sought to bring the gospel were the same as the 12 tribes that he mentioned in Acts chapter 26. Accepting the gospel of Christ, a white Christian nation can be preserved from the wrath of God this is not understood by secular white nationalists or by pagans or by the Judeo-Christians because the real core message of the Gospel is not taught in the so-called Judeo-Christian churches or in the popular Judeo-Christian writings. For us, the Bible represents a compact with God which he made exclusively to a particular family of nations. Those nations are to be separate from all others, all others, excuse me, abstain from fornication and idolatry, following certain basic moral principles, which are generally natural to our white race. That is the manner in which nations are preserved. So we must ask, How can any so-called secular white nationalist be opposed to that? If they are, it is only because they have a deviant underlying agenda. The nations are promised preservation in the gospel when they keep the commandments of Christ, which are the basic moral principles of the laws of God. And when the individuals of those nations practice brotherly love, and engage in self-sacrifice for the benefit of their own people and their own communities. This is what it means to believe in Jesus because this is what Jesus had taught. This is the core message of the Gospel. This is the core message which Adolf Hitler had Codified into National Socialism. This is the message that the Jews tried to prevent Paul from spreading. Because the Jews have always been averse to basic Christian morality. Instead wanting to use European whites as prey for play and for profit. As they had already been doing. Now we must ask, how is it that that message is not conducive to the preservation of European nations and cultures? And how can any secular so-called white nationalist be opposed to that? If they are, it is only because they have a deviant underlying agenda, and for that, they may as well be Jews. Today, identity Christians understand the true reasons for the wrath of God which is coming upon the modern world. And we know that there is no salvation in any of the plans of men. Perhaps that is why the secular white nationalists really hate us, because we will not go along with their wanting to play God. But without God, ultimately, they are all failures. As identity Christians, our ideals and motives are pure. We strive to love all of our white brethren who do not side with us against the enemies of our God. So these secular white nationalists who hate us may as well be Jews. And that is especially true since, one way or another, they blindly accept the lies of the Jews. They are no better than the ancient pagans who threw their own kindred to the lions for the sake of entertaining and gratifying both degenerate Romans and sadistic Jews. But we are not going to bow to them, nor shall we ever be intimidated by them. No matter how much they want to attempt to slander us by associating us with Jews, their doing so proves, at least to us, that it is they who associate with Jews. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul recounted the persecution of himself and his fellow Christians at the hands of the Jews and the pagans that the Jews managed to agitate and incite against them, who were cucks like Kyle Hunt. And he relates how he was forced to depart from Macedonia, having no opportunity to return to Thessalonica, and here, commencing with chapter 3 of this epistle... He speaks of that departure, and says, Wherefore, no longer being contained, we were pleased to be left behind in Athens alone. Where Paul says, no longer being contained. The Greek word is stego, Strong's 47.22 for which the King James Version has we could no longer forbear we could no longer forbear if the King James Version reading were accurate we could only wonder how Timothy and Silas stayed behind in Beria as Acts chapter 17 verse 14 indicates but according to Liddell and Scott the word stego is primarily to cover closely so as to keep a fluid either in or out, meaning to put a tight cover on something, although it has other uses in different contexts. Since Paul was closely followed and watched by his enemies, as the account in Acts chapter 17 indicates, he was contained or perhaps constrained in his liberty to move about as he pleased. In this regard, we read the following from Luke's account from Acts 17, 13-15. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Beria, they came there also and stirred up, or incited, the people. And then, immediately, the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens, unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for him, for them to come to him with all speed, they departed. Evidently being free of the Jews pursuing him in Macedonia, once in Athens, Paul was no longer traveling under cover, and a close watch of both his enemies and his companions as he was comfortable enough to send those who had escorted him to Athens back to Macedonia. And so he expresses that here, or rather Luke expresses it for him. So we see that once Paul arrived in Athens, he sent those who had brought him back there with a message to Timothy and Silas, who were still in Beria. So Paul was left behind in Athens alone. As he tells us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter three verse one, then in verse two, we learn that upon the arrival of Timothy and Silas in Athens, Paul sent Timothy again to Thessalonica. so he says, "We were pleased to be left behind in Athens alone and verse two reads and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of Yahweh in the good message of the anointed for which to establish and to encourage you concerning your faith that no one is shaken by these tribulations. There are many variations in verse 2 among the extant manuscripts. None of them probably important enough to read here but they will be in our accompanying notes to this podcast. So Paul mentions sending Timothy back to Thessalonica from Athens, but he does not make mention of Silas, who we later learn in verse 6 of this chapter seems to have remained with Paul. This also once again helps to establish that the Silas of the book of Acts is the Sylvanus of Paul's epistles. Now both men are together with Paul, as we see from the opening verse of this epistle that Timothy and Sylvanus are with him when this is written, where it is evident that Timothy has returned from Thessalonica to catch up with Paul again in Corinth. This epistle will be brought to the Thessalonians, and both men are with Paul again when the second epistle to the Thessalonians is written a short time later perhaps several months. The first time Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, while he is still in Athens, it is not clear whether Timothy bore an epistle to the Thessalonians from Paul. If he did, it was not this epistle, and this would actually be the second and not the first epistle to the Thessalonians. This is only conjectural since there is no indication of another epistle. But it is evident that Paul probably wrote many more letters than the 14 which survived to us since his ministry endured for approximately 27 years. Throughout our presentations of Paul's epistles, we have deduced from the evidence and from explicit statements that at least three of Paul's epistles are missing a true first epistle to the Corinthians, an epistle to the Laodiceans, and a probable epistle to the Galatians, since Paul mentions having sent them some instructions, which are certainly different than what we have in the epistle to the Galatians, which survives. We do not always mention these subscripts, There are explanatory subscripts for each of Paul's epistles. A subscript is a short note appended by a later hand to the end of the epistle. We do not consider them to be a part of the original text because it is evident from their nature that they are explanatory notes added to the end of each epistle by early Christians and as they are found in various ancient manuscripts they often disagree with one another saying totally different things so we exclude them from our translations for one, for one Thessalonians in the subscript as it appears in the majority text and the codex Alexandrinus this epistle was written from Athens however it is not possible that Timothy brought this epistle to Thessalonica the first time Paul sent him there from Athens because in verse 6 of this chapter Paul writes of the report which Timothy had brought to us from you and Paul already stated that he was alone when Timothy and Silas came to him in Athens. Additionally, Paul had sent for Timothy and Silas not from Thessalonica, but from Berea. So Paul must have written this epistle later, while he was in Corinth, as the subscript states in certain other manuscripts. But in the majority of the great uncials, the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Cleromontanus, and in the 3rd century papyrus, P30, the subscripts supply no location for the writing of this epistle. So we see that they were later innovations, and some of the scribes got it wrong. Here Paul tells us why he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica so quickly to assure the Thessalonians that none of his party were, quote unquote, shaken by these tribulations, a reference to the persecution suffered at the hands of the Jews and pagans. This is another of many similar examples. The Christians should never be intimidated by their adversaries, regardless of their methods and tactics. Paul was, in essence, fighting Bolshevism, That is, it existed in the first century and for 200 years in Judea before that time. The later half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 constitute a parenthetical statement where Paul makes a reference to the necessary defense of the faith and says, For you yourselves know that for this we are set, even when we were with you, we forewarned you, that we are about to be oppressed, just as it also has happened and you have seen." In a letter of 97 A.D. Written from Bithynia, Pliny the Younger had written to the Emperor Trajan, that in fact This contagious superstition, referring to Christianity, is not confined to the cities only, but has spread its infection among the neighboring villages of the country. Nevertheless, it still seems possible to restrain its progress. The warnings of the oppression of Christians are found in the Gospel of Christ. 35 years before Pliny's letter. I'm sorry, 65 years before Pliny's letter. And it is they which Paul must have used as the basis for the warnings to the Thessalonians of which he speaks here. As Christ had said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. In other words, his apostles would always have a place of refuge in one town or another, and for as long as they needed one. For that reason, when Paul had arrived in Corinth, and there were early attempts to persecute him there, he received an assurance as it is recorded by Luke, where it says in Acts chapter 18, Then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. In Acts 18, the reference to the fact that there were many of the people of God in Corinth was not a reference to the Jews. Rather, When the Jews had later brought Paul before Gallio, the Roman proconsul, in order to accuse him there, Gallio had the Jews themselves chastised and scourged rather than Paul. Now Paul elaborates upon some of what he has already said for this reason. In verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, For this reason, even I, no longer being contained, sent for which to know of your faith, whether the tempter has tempted you, and our labor should come to no purpose. The words tempter and tempted are from two different forms of the same Greek verb, pyrazo. The verb, according to the Delton Scott, primarily means to make proof or trial of and in that sense to try or tempt a person to put him to the test where it is used as it is here with the accusative case of person. As the words appear in our English rendering, the first occurrence is a substantive, a participle accompanied by a definite article where it refers to a particular tempter. The second occurrence is an active third-person form of the verb. Therefore, it describes a particular tempter whom Paul describes as doing the act of tempting those Christians at Thessalonica. This same form of this word was used at Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 in the account of the temptation of Christ in the Gospel. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be a son of God, command these stones be made bread. And of Christ of course Christ told them, You're crazy, get lost, in not so many words. In one Thessalonians two eighteen, Paul had used the term for Satan as a reference to those Jews who persecuted him and who had hindered him from returning to Thessalonica. In that same manner here, he uses this term, the tempter, referring to a particular tempter to describe those same Jews who were afflicting the Thessalonians themselves. Since it is they who had incited the pagan Thessalonians against the Christians, Paul had already said in chapter 2 of this epistle that you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Referring to the events recorded in Acts chapter 17, where the Jews, being jealous and taking certain wicked men from the markets, making a riot through the city into confusion. So, the Satan of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a collective term for the Jews persecuting Christians. And the tempter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a collective term for the Jews persecuting Christians. Next, Paul commends the Thessalonians for the report of what Timothy found when he had returned to Thessalonia from Athens. But now, Timotheus, coming to us from you, and having announced to us the good news of your faith and love, and that you always have a good memory of us, longing to see us, exactly as we also you. Because of this we have been encouraged, brethren, concerning you, in all of our oppression and anguish because of your faith. Here Paul verifies by the circumstances that he had sent Timothy to Thessalonica from Athens and now Paul is in Corinth. So Timothy returns to Paul, ostensibly meeting him in Corinth, and where Paul says coming to us from you, he informs us that when Silas had come to Athens with Timothy, Paul must have kept silence with himself or perhaps sent him elsewhere in the interim, and that Timothy went off to Thessalonica alone. When Timothy returns to Paul, he informs him that the Thessalonian Christians had remained steadfast in the faith in spite of the persecutions of the Jews, in spite of Satan, the tempter. Paul and his companions themselves facing that same persecution he expresses the encouragement he feels when learning that the Thessalonians had not succumbed to the tempter in verses 8 and 9. Because we now live, if perhaps you should stand in the prince, what gratitude are we able to repay to Yahweh concerning you, for all the joy in which we rejoice on account of you before our God. Paul makes a conditional statement in verse 8 that we're going to explain momentarily because we now live, if perhaps you should stand in the prince. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul told his readers that, If to others I am not an apostle, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message is you in the prince. The assurance of my message, meaning the fact, the proof that his gospel is valid. In 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul spoke similarly where he said, of course the solid foundation of Yahweh stands. Having this assurance, Yahweh knows those who are his and all who are calling By name, the name of Yahweh must withdraw from unrighteousness, must depart from sin. In that same manner, Paul is assured of life here, meaning that the proof of the legitimacy of his apostleship is in its fruits. And if it bears fruit in the face of such adversity, then it is indeed a legitimate apostleship. And that alone is an assurance that it is truly from God. Therefore, it is safely concluded that with the assurance that his ministry is true, because it bore fruit in the face of such incredible opposition, then Paul is confident that the assurance of eternal life in Christ, promised by the gospel which he carried, is also true. And since he bore fruit, he himself and those who labored with him had a certain assurance of partaking in that promise. The truth of Christianity is replete in itself. Finding the gospel and the promises are true through the assurances in which he rejoices, Paul asks how it could even be possible for him to show sufficient gratitude to God. This is indeed a signal proof of the truth of Christianity, that it would be exceedingly persecuted, and yet it would endure, and the white European world would become a Christian world, in spite of the trials of the martyrs, that all of this... The success and the adversity was foretold in the words of Christ himself, and that it indeed happened precisely as Christ had both promised and warned. Paul saw the beginnings of the fulfillment of those promises and the accompanying warnings, and that was proof enough for him to be confident in the veracity of his message. That's how he knew that we now live. That's how he knew that the the promises of eternal life are true. Paul explains what gratitude he would be able to repay in verse 10. Night and day begging beyond excess for which to see your person and to furnish the things deficient in your faith. The Nestlé aland Novum Testamentum, Grecae, Editions 27 and 28, along with the King James Version and other manuscript editors, other older manuscript editors, such as Stephanus, continue the interrogation, which ends at verse 9 here, through the end of verse 10. Of course, there was no punctuation in the original Greek, but it is clear to us that the text of verse 10 is the answer to the question which Paul asks in verses 8 and 9. At least two of the 19th century manuscript editors noted by George Rickerberry Berry in his own edition of the Greek, Greaseback and Alford, agree with our punctuation here. So we are not alone. Even though Berry himself agreed with Stephanus and the King James Version. In verses 8 and 9, Paul had asked how he could show his gratitude to Yahweh God, which he felt obliged to show because the Thessalonians had remained in the faith. Here in verse 10, he answers his own question that he may show his gratitude by praying incessantly that God allow him their fellowship and the opportunity to minister to them even further. Furthermore, Paul is not saying that the faith of the Thessalonians was insufficient, but ostensibly that instead it raised many questions which must be answered and things which must be learned. For which the Thessalonians could not turn to their former teachers in the synagogues which were attended by both Judeans and Greeks. Using this same language Paul spoke of the ministers of the faith in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 where he admonished his readers Now I exhort you brethren you know the house of Stephanus, that they are the first fruits of Cahia and they have appointed themselves for service to the saints, that you also should be subject to to such as these, and to each who is cooperating and toiling. And I am delighted at the presence of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Akahicus, seeing that they have filled your deficiency. They stood as teachers in the assembly, answering those questions. And Yahweh himself, even our father and our prince Yahshua, may guide our way to you. He then concludes this portion of his epistle by encouraging the Thessalonians. Now, may the prince may make you have an excess and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we also for you. For which to establish your hearts blameless in holiness before Yahweh, even our Father, in the presence of our Prince with all of his holy ones, truly. Or Amen. And the majority text and the Codex Vaticanus want that word. In that verse, writing to the Christian assemblies of Roman Asia, the Apostle Peter informed them, That they were an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. In a passage that continues by explaining that they were indeed descended from the ancient Israelites of the Old Testament, where it cites Hosea chapter 2. Paul likewise explained to the Corinthians in part what that holiness that he speaks of here, actually entailed. Where he admonished them, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens, for what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living God, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the prince. And do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the Almighty Prince. That is how to be holy and blameless. Now we shall commence with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul, writing for what remains seems to be addressing some of the issues which the Thessalonians may have inquired of him through Timothy, and perhaps in a letter of their own, even though we have no surviving manuscripts. So for what remains, brethren, we ask and we encourage you by Prince Joshua that just as you have received from us to walk in that manner, which is necessary for us and to please Yahweh, even just as you do walk, that you should abound still more." The majority text wants the phrase, even just as you do walk, so it's missing in the King James Version. All of the ancient great uncles which contain that verse have that phrase. What does it take to please God? The Gospel tells us what is required in John chapter 14. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So to be loved by God, The Christian knows, the true Christian knows, only that he should keep the moral commandments of God's law. Because according to the words of that same God in the Old Testament, the rituals and the ceremonies, the temple worship, the sacrifices, the circumcision, are all done away with in Christ. Examining the substance of those moral commandments, no man should despise Christians for keeping them, unless that man has an underlying agenda. The Jews, whom Paul said were contrary to all men in chapter 2 of this epistle, have always opposed and have always sought to abrogate the basic moral principles of Christianity. This is the first question that white nationalists must ask. Who opposes Christianity? In ancient Rome, which was a pagan tyranny, the state had its own officially approved religion, although some of the religions of the conquered provinces, such as Judaism, were tolerated for political reasons. The new Christian creed was opposed because it appealed to Greeks and Romans and was therefore threatening to the very foundations of the state. The Romans understood that the integrity of their government was undermined by the Christian precept that only God could righteously rule over men. But it was the Jews who consistently brought this to the attention of the Romans so that Christianity would be persecuted as the Jews themselves had said before Pilate we have no king but Caesar so two groups hated and opposed Christianity from the beginning the Jews and those who would uphold the pagan tyranny now the Jews have turned Christians away from Christ And once again, we live in a virtual pagan tyranny. And real Christians are again persecuted for those same reasons. So once again, pagan and so-called secular whites who persecute Christians are tools for the Jews. And they are being used to help maintain the tyranny. All of those clowns, they're all cucks and tools for Satan. Paul continues by repeating some of the same ways by which Christians please God. For you know what instructions we gave you by Prince Yahshua, or by the Lord Jesus, if you will. For this is the will of Yahweh, your sanctification. You are to abstain from fornication. Each of you are to know to possess one's own vessel in sanctification and in honor. The noun paragelia is an instruction here, where the King James Version instead has commandments. It refers to a word-of-mouth command, order, or instruction, and not necessarily to the written law. The corresponding verb paragelo, agalo, it means by an angel, to receive or hear something by an angel. That's what the word means. It means an angel being a messenger. It means to receive something by word of mouth. The corresponding verb paragello is instructed in verse 11 of this chapter, where the King James Version has commanded. Paul is referring to the basic commandments related by Christ in the Gospel, as well as the admonitions added to those commandments by the apostles themselves as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15. Those additions were based on the law and ostensibly needed to be added because of the cultural differences between the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek society in interpreting the basic commandments found in the Old Testament. Paul used the term fornication In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to describe an occurrence of race mixing among the Israelites, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 25, for which the Israelites suffered a great plague. Therefore, it is clear that while the Greeks, to the Greeks, the primary use of the term for fornication was to describe illicit sexual acts, such as prostitution, the word also described the act of miscegenation or race-mixing. This is supported by the definition for the term provided by the Apostle Jude, who explicitly said that fornication was the pursuit of strange or different flesh. That word strange being heteros, the Greek word which simply means different. So Christianity forbids race mixing, and who could be opposed to that? Except the Jew, who has always promoted race mixing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul explained that marriage was the remedy to the sinful urge which may lead to fornication. So ostensibly, fornication would also include other sexual acts outside of the natural intercourse between a man and a woman. Who could be opposed to that? But the Jew, who has always been the panderer and purveyor of sexual perversion. Gregory Johnson should take note of that, the faggot that pretends to be a white nationalist. Here we offer another digression. We sympathize with the problems which all white nationalists should have with so-called Judeo-Christianity. But the problems which the secular white nationalists have with true Christianity reveal their true proclivities. They have had plenty of time to investigate these things. They have often been informed and they refuse to discuss them with us on our own terms, preferring instead to persistently promote the lies that the Jews repeat about identity Christians. One cannot honestly oppose Christian morality and Christian principles and claim to be a supporter of our white race, or especially a defender. Paul continues his admonition. Not in emotions, in other words, each of you are to know to possess one's own vessel, meaning to have esteem for your body and your person, in sanctification and in honor. Not in emotions of passion, just as even the nations who do not know Yahweh. Here, the phrase, even the nations, may be interpreted to say, even the heathens, and be just as correct. Heathens are non-Christians. As Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in part, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Paul is not necessarily referring to the nations of the Oikumene, which did not descend from Israel, but rather to all of the nations of the Oikumene, the Roman-Greco-Roman living space, which were caught up in paganism, which included those that had descended from ancient Israel. Like the modern-day Freemasons, Many of the religious rites of the ancient world were shrouded in secrecy, supposedly known only to those who were initiated. The Greek historian Herodotus says that he was intimately familiar with the Eleusinian mysteries of the cult of Demeter, which were popular at Athens, Demeter being one of their female idols. But Herodotus averred that he had to remain silent concerning them. It was not permitted him to repeat them. It is said that the poet Aeschylus, who was a rough contemporary of Herodotus, once feared for his life, because in some of his poems he came close to describing certain of the pagan rites. Livy, the Roman historian, vividly described the frenzied rites of Bacchanalia and the violent sexual nature of the rites undergone by its initiates. Herodotus did describe the sexual nature of temple worship in other countries such as Babylonia. Tertullian described the phallus worship of pagans how they admired the genitals of the priests in their temples. This pagan licentiousness is certainly among the things which Paul of Tarsus means to describe here. But Paul's language should not be limited to these things. Neo-pagans worship their own bodies by taking hundreds of selfies on Facebook. It's a little different now. The computer is their temple. They sit behind their keyboards and make up Jewish or, or adopt Jewish lies and apply them to real Christians. The word for emotions here is pathos. The King James Version renders it as lust, but lust is only one emotion and not at all what the word describes. Liddell and Scott defined pathos as anything that befalls one, an incident, accident, what one has suffered one's experience, or commonly, in a bad sense, a suffering, misfortune, calamity, and then of the soul, a passion, emotion, such as love, hate, etc. And finally, any passive state, a condition. So, pathos is not lust. Lust can be a pathos, but the King James translated pathos as lust, and that's just wrong. The word for passion here is epithumia, where the King James Version has concupiscence. Now, since concupiscence means sexual lust or desire, the King James Version is strangely redundant, repetitive. According to Liddell and Scott, epithumia is a desire. It could be any desire, yearning, longing, a longing after a thing a desire for it. So, emotions of lust may have been a valid translation of the phrase, but Paul's language is not limited to the concept of desire of a sexual nature. The commandment that says, neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, also says, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that is his neighbor's. Rather, Paul is urging these Christians to abstain from all sorts of other lusts as well, such as the desire for material gratification, which he refers to as he continues in verse 6 in relation to this same statement, not to be excessive and to be greedy in business with one's brother. Since the prince is an avenger concerning all these things, just as also we have forewarned and affirmed to you. The word pragma here is business, where the King James Version has matter, and adds the word any so that it makes sense. According to Liddell and Scott, the word is primarily that which has been done, a deed, an act and can describe a matter or an affair, as well as a duty, a business, business or circumstance. We have chosen to write business because this admonishment in verse 6 is directly related to Paul's statements concerning covetousness in verse 5. The Roman historian Livy frequently described the turmoil caused by the usurers in Rome who made their livings, even their fortunes, by oppressing the common people. The Roman statesman, Seneca, was one such notable usurer. And the late 2nd century Roman historian, Dio Cassius, blamed Seneca's usury for the uprising of the Iceni in Britain led by Queen Boudicca, perhaps about ten years after Paul wrote this very epistle. Christianity alone forbid usury. And for that reason, throughout the Middle Ages, the Jews had a virtual monopoly on usury in Europe, mostly on account of weak Kings and nobles who used Jews for the purpose of making money for themselves. Allow the Jew to practice usury, and you could tax the Jew and take a big cut. Pious Christian kings, such as Edward I, forbid usury entirely. But the Jews were always able to sneak back into nations that forbid them by pandering to weaker rulers. That is the theme of the National Socialist film jude sus But in pagan Europe, the practice always survived. It always thrived, and was never outlawed, even though some of the pagan Greek philosophers had also opposed it. However, only Christianity has ever proactively opposed usury in Europe. The philosophers could write all they want. Nobody really paid much attention. The admittance of usury advances the cause of Jewish materialism, turns men into capitalists, and forces them to compete with rather than to lift up their brethren. Once usury is introduced into a community, Such competition is inevitable, and the usurer is slowly able to drain all of the community's resources into his own pockets. Sound Christian principles forbid usury, and once again, who could oppose them but the Jew? Paul says in verse 7, For Yahweh has not called us to uncleanness, but in sanctification. So then, he who is rejecting, rejects not man, but Yahweh, who is also giving his Holy Spirit unto you. We have already used Paul's own words to describe that sanctification, in part, as we cited 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Christians are admonished to separate themselves from idolatry, lust, fornication, which includes race mixing, to abstain from usury, and from oppressing their fellow men, keeping the basic moral laws of Yahweh their God. So once again, who could oppose those things but Jews? It is fully evident throughout the last 2,000 years of history that the Jew has certainly opposed all of those things. Therefore, All of the secular and pagan white nationalists who oppose true Christians are basically doing the work of the Jews. No white man in his right mind should oppose any of what true Christianity espouses. Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by Yahweh. ...for which to love one another. That term, you have no need to write to you, that phrase is rather clumsy. We understand that. But we chose to follow what we esteem to be the oldest and most reliable readings in the manuscripts, rather than those which seem to have attempted to correct Paul's grammar. In essence, he is saying that you have no need to be written to. And that or you have no need to be written to you. And that is the reading of the 6th century Codex Coislinianus at that verse. And that is also the same phrase that appears in the most reliable manuscripts for chapter 5, verse 1 of this epistle, where it says that very thing, and where all ancient manuscripts agree. There are variations among the other codices. The text here follows the Codexes Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, and a majority text. Brotherly love is a concept from the Old Testament, where it says in Leviticus chapter 19, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. And that's a, an exhortation to equitable and fair judgment without holding grudges or taking undue punishment out on on your brother. Brotherly love is also a commandment of Christ in the New Testament, where Christ had said in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, he said in John chapter 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, the Christian principle of self-sacrifice, for your kin and community. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Who could oppose and even hate Christians for loving their own brethren? Only the Jews and whoever follows the Jews. Since the Christian hope is held out exclusively for those who descended from the ancient 12 tribes of Israel, as Paul stated emphatically in Acts chapter 26, and as he had also described in Romans chapter 4, then the Christian hope is a racial hope, as we see in Luke chapter 1. And brotherly love pertains only to the people of those same 12 tribes. If you're not of my tribe, you can't be my brother. We know from the Old Testament that all of the promises of God are reserved for these people. Properly, identity Christians reserve their love for their own racial kindred in that same manner. The Jew does not oppose the idea of loving everyone in the world but the Jew vehemently opposes the idea of withholding one's love for those of one's own race. So once again, the secular so-called white nationalists demonstrate their agreement with the Jew by opposing identity Christians, especially when, in the case of David Duke or Jared Taylor, they readily give audience to Judeo-Christians. You also do this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10. You also do this toward all the brethren in the whole of Macedonia. And we encourage you, brethren, to abound more and endeavor earnestly to be at rest and to be busy with your own affairs and to work with your own hands, just as we have instructed you. Paul encouraged men to work for their livings, to work honestly for their livings, rather than to take advantage of others, or to live as parasites, like the Jews do, from their usury and other vices. He will repeat this admonition in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, in its closing verses, where he says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. Christians have no license for parasites and freeloaders. Of course, only the Jews would oppose that. And perhaps certain white nationalists that make lucrative livings being white nationalists while coddling Jews. For that very reason, Paul concludes by stating, in order that you would walk decently compared with those outside and would have no need of no one. Paul taught self-sufficiency the same thing that all real white nationalists should profess. That preposition pros is compared with here. Liddell and Scott list a definition lists such a definition when the word is used to compare two objects, which is the manner in which we interpret it here. It may have been more literally rendered as towards, as the King James and other versions have it. The phrase, those outside, is what the translators of the King James Version meant when they used the archaic phrase, them that are without they who are outside we may have written those who are excluded because as we have already asserted the Christian promise is only extended to the descendants of the ancient 12 tribes of the children of Israel none of whom are Jews and who could oppose that but the Jews themselves therefore perhaps the secular white nationalists are not a secular nor as white As they appear to be. Next week, the end of our presentation of 1 Thessalonians with the Rapture of the Saints. And of course we will put a question mark on the end of that phrase. This is for Kyle Hunt, and I hope he hears it. He needs to put some boots on.